one of the most senior and respected spiritual leaders of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, ISKCON, Sri Dayananda Das Goswami, a.k.a. Dr. Howard Resnick, is an early pioneer and renowned teacher of bhakti yoga in the Western world. At the forefront of contemporary religious dialogue, he is celebrated for his unique ability to adapt the wisdom of ancient Indian philosophy into teachings that are comprehensible for Western audiences. In 1972, with a relentless desire to, serve, to better serve the world, he accepted a vow of lifelong celibacy. H.D. Goswami spent the following 20 years establishing over 40 ISKCON centers and supervising the translation, publication, and distribution of millions of Srila Prabhupada's books throughout Central and South America, Italy, and Greece. During this time, he earned the distinction as the first Westerner in history to translate and comment upon the canonical Bhagavat Purana from within the tradition Jai. He set historical precedents with a perfect mark on the Sanskrit comprehensive exam at Harvard University, where he received his PhD in Sanskrit and Indian studies in 1996. And more recently, in 2013, he launched Krishna West, uh, because people in the West need and deserve the chance to practice genuine bhakti yoga within an external culture that is comfortable and natural for them, H.D. Goswami established Krishna West to help facilitate ISKCON's outreach to Western countries. An amazing man. Thank you for joining. So, yeah, I'd like to meet that. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It sounds so amazing. <laughs> so first of all, how do you prefer I address you? You have many different names. You know, so Joe, let's see. Um, yeah, Goswami is fine. Okay, I like Goswami. That's good. Um, so I have, I since you're a Sanskrit master, I have a, definitely some Sanskrit questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> but first, out of um, what's the word? Uh, honor to my friends, uh, I. I asked on Facebook if anyone had questions for you. Only two people responded. So I think we can start there, and uh, they will really appreciate that. First is from Abhimanyu Das. I met him in Bali, Indonesia. He's American about your age. He said, I've wanted to ask him if everything was much larger in size in the past yuga, physically and geographically. Oh my! <laughs> um, I think what Abhimanyu is referring to is uh, the Yugas, of course, which are great ages that last for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, there was a common notion in the ancient world, that we also find in Greece, for example, that in a previous age, um, people were larger. You find that, for example, in Homer in the Iliad. And I think also in, uh, um, oh my God, the other great Greek writer, he wrote works and days, Rusty. Anyway, in ancient Greek literature, you find that. Also in, in ancient Greece, you find the notion that these four great ages of the earth, or perhaps other worlds, are, com are compared to metals, golden age, silver, uh, bronze and iron 
And so there, there are connections here between the ancient Greco-Roman world and, of course, ancient India. As far as, um, as, far as saying that people were much larger back then, um, archaeologists, of course, won't be happy if I say they were. <laughs> um, what we do have in the Bhagavatam, that, our, that key text we have, is a statement that in this age, uh, things tend to be, uh, the Sanskrit word is shakti rasam, which means their power is diminished. I mean, we even know, for example, with modern art, agriculture, mechanized agriculture, that, that foods just don't have the nutrients they used to. <laughs> and um, so if you can take that shakti rasam, that diminishing of power, shakti, I'm not aware of any archaeological evidence that people were, let's say, much bigger in the past, and um, nor do the scriptures really say that. What we do find in, in our Sanskrit literature, and also in the Old Testament, by the way, is that people used to live for much longer periods of time. So you have people living for many hundreds of years, and that, so those biblical descriptions, I guess, of Noah and other patriarchs, uh-oh, I said patriarch, Hit <laughs> me. So, anyway, so um, so that so what we do, there is some agreement that 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 in, in a previous age people were had more power, perhaps they were larger, or uh, they lived longer. As far as what we would call today, somewhat naively, scientific evidence, um, that's not really there. So, in the absence of any explicit scriptural uh, claim that people were larger, you know, an explicit claim, like, you know, how much bigger. God, imagine the basketball teams they had back then. <laughs> anyway, so, so I prefer not to, I guess, claim to know what I don't know. And uh, so I'll just leave it at that. Fair enough. Um, there is some evidence I found. Uh, the only evidence I've seen for giant skeletons were actually in North America. I forget where. It was in, in Minnesota or some random Midwest place like that, I think. Uh, they found a bunch of skeletons. Some were seven feet, some were up to eight or nine feet with bigger uh, skull size. Of course, this is not mainstream archaeology, so you got you got to do some digging to find this stuff. Actually, um, when you type in, I mean, I don't want to say Google because I don't want to endorse them, but when you <laughs> um, giant skeletons in the U.S., here's an article. Of course, I can't obviously verify this. Smithsonian, the Smithsonian, our own government museum that we all own, right, because it's America. Smithsonian admits to destruction of thousands of giant human skeletons in early 1990s. Wow. So um, I also, also there, there, there's an excellent book written by two friends of mine, one who passed away, but uh, Sadaputa, Richard Thompson, and uh, Dudukarma, who is, um, what's his legal name? Anyway, they're both devotees, and... Um, they wrote, they wrote a book together called Forbidden Archaeology with the Hidden History of the Human Race. And there is what sociologists call a knowledge filter in the sense that what we find in the 19th century and early 20th century that when uh, 
archaeology sort of locked onto a certain view of the world, like this is how evolution took place. And so anomalous evidence was very efficiently dealt with by throwing it away and or just denying it. And, and there, there, were, there are a lot of anomalies. So if you study the history of archaeology, the general picture, I think, is not... I'm not challenging the general picture, but there are a lot of anomalies, which... And, and so this is historically documented. This is not my opinion. You can read the book. And that um, anomalies tended to be just discarded. I remember I... Uh, I had a friend who was an archaeologist at Oxford, and he said one time when he was a student, they were out on a dig, and he found some bone or artifact that was uh, it shouldn't have been in a you know in a layer as old as he found it. It was because according to the their theory at the time, at at that layer, you know, you didn't find things like that. And so the professor just took it and said, oh, uh, that can't be that old, so he just threw it away. So um, the notion that scholars are just objectively pursuing the truth, they, they're this noble race of people, um, no. I mean, some of them are noble, I'm sure. There's a very famous book by Kuhn called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which was a uh, has had an extraordinary amount of influence in the academic community, which he showed that um, human beings are human beings. But if they're scientists, they become attached to a certain paradigm. And even when there's all kinds of contradictory evidence, they've invested their whole careers in that. So they just kind of go down with the ship. And then you get a new generation of scholars. Basically, an old generation dies off, and their worldview dies off with them, and then another view comes in. The great Scottish philosopher David Hume uh, in the early 1700s, mid-1700s, good old skeptical Davy Hume, he said that, um, he argued that, and there's some truth in this, that people, based on their intuition, based on their attachments, their desires, their hopes, their all kinds of psychological stuff, they become uh, attached to a certain idea and then they look, and this is called confirmation bias, and then they look for evidence to support it. And, you know, seek and you shall find. So in, 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 in psychology and in the sociology of knowledge, it's called confirmation bias, where because you are attached to confirming something, you find the confirmation. I mean, this is even true in relationships. If someone is, like, you know, convinced that, you know, he or she is cheating on me or something, even when it's not true... And then they see all kinds of telltale signs and suspicious, like, why did she say that? Or why didn't he come back on time? Or, and so there is a, um, an element in human psychology that kind of will see things in a way that they may not really be because it confirms something that one is attached to believing, whether it's the field of, you know, of, of jealous lovers or archaeology. And so, um, I mean, there's all kinds. If I could just throw something else in here. Sure, sure. At, at no extra cost to you. And that is that we are actually living in an age of and witnessing a, a, a historical uh, revolution, intellectual revolution. And if I could just explain that very quickly. 
because uh, I think it's relevant to any sort of contemporary discussion of quote-unquote spiritual things. And that is that, um, what was his name? Uh, Friedrich Hegel, you know, our mutual friend, Hegel, the philosopher, so, who actually lived during the time of Jane Austen, but uh, which is, I guess, kind of an honor for him. Anyway, so he, he had a theory of history which Marx, of course, embraced, which was a dialectical theory of history, and it, 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 it fits, I think it's Newton's third law of motion, I always forget, second or third law of motion, what Galileo called the pendulum effect, and that is that every action produces an equal and opposite reaction. So, so if you think of a pendulum, if you, the more you pull it to one side, that's how far it'll go to the other side. It'll, you know, it'll balance itself. And so um, Hegel argued that history moves dialectically, which basically means, and, and this is, of course, it's, this is not an age-related forgetting of what I was talking about. I'm going to use this to explain what's going on right now in terms of, of contemporary intellectual history. And that is that um, uh, if you look at that, if you look at the religious history, okay, dialectical means that there's a thesis, which just means the way things are now, the status quo. And then, uh, as you find that hilarious Monty Python movie, The uh, Holy Grail. And they say, like, it's sort of a Marxist thing, like, like, uh, like Newton, Newton's law of motion, that every action produces an equal and opposite reaction. So because any society, any historical condition, let's say right now, being alive in 2020, um, it's not just an absolutely neutral culture we live in. Our culture has some extremist views. And as we know, in the future, people look back on 2020 and, and say, God, were they crazy. Yeah. So, so anyway, um, so because our culture is committed to certain views, which are not absolutely centered, not absolutely neutral, not absolutely fair, you could say, not absolutely aligned with the laws of nature, both the physical laws, psychological laws, sociological, therefore, our society in the present state it is now, because it is off-center, whatever, uh, you know, sort of uh, contemporary narcissist may think, our society is off-center, and therefore it's producing an equal and opposite reaction. Mm, yep. It's a pendulum. So, so to the degree, the degree to which our society in many ways is off-center, in some ways way off-center, to that degree, it is producing a counterforce, a pendulum effect that will draw our society back to the other end. And so that, that counterforce that wants to, that opposite force, equal and opposite force that Newton speaks of, is the antithesis. And then after it kind of bounces around for a while, it sort of hopefully, you know, finds some kind of... Uh, Synthesis. Synthesis, exactly. It's a synthesis. So the way this relates to the modern world is that if you look at the religious history of the Western world, especially since the collapse of the Roman Empire, because in, in the Greco-Roman world, you actually had religious freedom in many ways, and um, it was extremely multicultural, extremely multi-religious, and, and, and quite cosmopolitan in many ways, with some exceptions, but in general quite cosmopolitan. 
Then with the fall, then the Roman Empire became Christian. It started to become fanatical. It collapsed. The Middle Ages, people thought they needed to sort of fanaticize their way out of darkness. In other words, there was really chaos after the Roman Empire fell. There was chaos, and so we need a strong leader. It's almost like Germany after World War One, where they elected a you know mega creep Hitler. And so, but that's what sort of what happened after the fall of the Roman Empire. People were desperate. There were like gangs and warlords just going around, you know, killing people and stealing. And so you have the imposition of this very heavy order, especially with uh, Charlemagne, which, in, which means Charles the Great. Charlemagne and, uh, and the Holy Roman Empire around 7800. And so, and so with that, you get this fanatical regime. It, it's sort of a reaction to the chaos after the fall of the Roman Empire, but it doesn't stop. It just, it just keeps going. You get this heavy fanaticism, and uh, you know, if you don't belong to the religion of the state, you'll be tortured and killed and all that really good stuff. Anyway, to make a long story short, around the 1300s, people start saying, like, what the heck? And, and they started sort of rediscovering that ancient classical civilization that had religious freedom that had incredible achievements in everything from art, architecture to sculpture to literature to philosophy. And here they were living in this kind of like endless Monty Python movie. And so at that point they said, you know, the Renaissance, which means in French, of course, Renaissance means rebirth. So the obvious question is rebirth of what? And it's a rebirth of pagan culture. It's a rebirth of the classical civilization existed before all this violent fanaticism and before all this sort of, you know, people in the Middle Ages, they were a little crude, let us say. And so um, then the Renaissance just kind of, you know, it picks up steam and then you get the Protestant Reformation in the early 1500s, which is very important because the Protestant Reformation, I mean, I'm certainly not endorsing Luther's uh, philosophy for very good reasons. However, the positive, side, the positive side of the Protestant Reformation was that it started to democratize religion. It was a rejection of these heavy, let's say, well, Roman Catholic hierarchies. In fact, you know, up to that point, if you read the Bible, if you just read the Bible, you could be killed for it. I mean, if you translated the Bible, it, it was a capital crime to translate the Bible into a vernacular, a language that people in general could understand. But then you, because, because if you do read the Bible, you may detect that, you know, the church saying a lot of things that aren't in the Bible. But what happened is, you get the, the invention of the printing press in the 1450s. You get the age of exploration, you know, everyone's favorite historical period, the age of colonization. So, you know, interestingly, apart from all the evils of the age of colonization, which we're all well aware of, uh, for all its evil, it did start to put the world back in touch. I mean, everyone, it, it started to develop a new cosmopolitan understanding. So, so and, and there's a printing press. You get a printing press, and then you start discovering new continents, new cultures. So people write about this, and suddenly there's a, there's a skyrocketing level of literacy in the West. Because you have printing, because before the printing press, uh, books were copied by hand, and therefore they were extremely expensive. And the only people that owned books, not to speak of a library, basically the church, because they had lots of money, because they owned half of Europe, and, um, and nobles. No one else could afford books. But with the printing press, 
people, you know, you can get a book cheaply, and therefore people start to learn to read and write because there's books around, and so they they read two kinds of books essentially, both of which are very revolutionary. They read the Bible and they start to realize, hey, our priest is telling us lots of things that aren't in the Bible, like the sacraments, like the church is the body of Christ, and you know the wine is his blood, and that's not in the Bible. I'm, this is not a, an anti-Catholic rant, by the way. I'm just saying that people did discover the church was teaching a lot of things that weren't in the Bible. The other kind of literature they read, which was also in its own way revolutionary, was travel literature. Because people were going to foreign lands, and you know the Americas and Asia, and, and for the first time in centuries and centuries and centuries, people learning about other parts of the world, and it's starting to become cosmopolitan. And I mean, to give an example of how ignorant Europe was, when Vasco da Gama went to um, Southwest India, Goa, he heard, you know, like great resort area. Anyway, so when Vasco da Gama sailed around Africa. To, to Southwest India, that's why they, you know, have a lot of people still speak Portuguese around there. Um, everyone in Europe, including the Pope, you know, from the Pope down, everyone in Europe believed that India was a Christian nation because there was some myth, myth, you know, they thought it was real, that one of the apostles went to India naturally. This is called hagiography, where you tell these sort of exaggerated miraculous stories of saints. And so, you know, one of the apostles went to India, and what do you expect? You know, you'd never expect less from an apostle. He converted to the subcontinent. And so there's even a sort of a tragic comic story where Vasco da Gama lands on the coast. He goes into this temple of Devi, you know, Shakti, the goddess. And he thinks it's a temple to the Virgin Mary. So, and, and one other thing, Vasco da Gama is around, you know, roughly 1500, but the Renaissance had not reached Portugal. If you know your geography, Renaissance starts in Florence, Italy, it spreads up to France and other places. Portugal is the end of the line. So Portugal, even this is like in, in, in the full bloom of the Renaissance, they are still totally medieval. So he goes into this church or temple of, of Shakti, of the goddess, and then he thinks it's the Virgin Mary. He has been there for days. Eventually he finds out what it is, so he just kind of you know, destroys everything, because that's what a good Christian would do in those days. But anyway, so, so you start to get travel literature. People start to learn that there's a world out there, and for all the evils of colonization, people start to become much more cosmopolitan than they were before. And that inevitably starts to lead to a sense of cultural relativism. For example, you start to get... God, I don't want to do the whole thing, but the reason the Age of Exploration was because the Muslims conquered Constantinople, it interrupted international trade, they were looking for another trade route. And so you start to get all these products from other countries, people start to collect, you know, whether it's perfumes or whether it's food items or whether it's clothes or art, people start to get into other cultures. And, and so, so on the cultural level, people in general, they start to it inevitably starts to relativize their own culture. And then with the printing press, and then the Protestant Reformation, religion is relativized. God is relativized because suddenly millions of people in Europe can do what no one dared or could do before, and that is read the Bible. 
And so you start to get different religions, all kinds of different Protestant sects. And, and the church, Catholic church is kind of playing backup. You know, it's kind of like third quarter, you're down 12 points. They start to come from behind basketball, and they start to reform and all kinds of things. And then on top of that, as if that wasn't uh, disruptive enough, by the time you get in the 1600s, you get the scientific revolution. And then you get a new thing. So you not only have Catholics and Protestants, and the Protestants say, you know, they believe in, in, the, in, the, in the priesthood of all believers. So every man and woman is their own priest, which is very revolutionary. And then you start to get a scientific revolution, and you have a third option. It's not just Catholicism or Protestantism. Mm. It's just being a rational human being and doing science and finding out what's really out there. And so, so just, I'm gonna. But so then you get these Protestant Catholic wars. You get the repression of the free thinkers, especially in France, which may, which which is why you get such radical atheism in France. But 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 just to get to the point here, if you go back to the Holy Roman Empire, where they tried to reestablish order in the world, so 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 you know everyone is not subject to these roving warlords gangs that just kill for you know for a few bucks or whatever and so, so you get this heavy fanatical christianity then with the scientific revolution the churches respond at least in many places in europe especially you know france italy places like that spain by bashing the new science and so you get this you get what is called the war thesis or, or the battle thesis but i mean historians use that term which is by the time you get to the 1700s in france in the 1800s in, 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 in England and other places, Germany, you start to get the idea that religion, religion is the enemy of human progress. I mean, not to say, we, haven't, we haven't even gone into crusades, inquisitions, other like yeah. stuff. You know, one inquisition could ruin your whole day. So it was so brutal. I mean, Europe was going through centuries of, of, of just unspeakable cruelty massacres, torture. It, it was, it was, I mean, if, you may think it was bad, but as I always say, if you read the history, actual history, it was much worse than you think. Mm. And so by the time, and then, and then in contrast to that, you start to get science. And everyone can agree on it because it's not like, are you Protestant, are you Catholic? What, you know, what kind of the, you know, there, there's like 50 different Protestant groups. What kind of Catholic are you? Science is science. You know, Newton is Newton. Galileo is Galileo. And so science is seen as the salvation of humankind. Because, you know, okay, we were under the priests for so many centuries. All we got is bloodshed, fanaticism, the suppression of knowledge, the, the you know, keeping human beings in a state of ignorance. And so you get this battle thesis where religion is the enemy of human progress, which is why the French Revolution, they killed the priests. Uh, you know, religion is the enemy of human progress and, uh, and the enemy of knowledge. And if we're ever going to build a, a just, enlightened, and happy civilization, you have to kill religion. And therefore, you get, for example, Karl Marx. Mm -hmm. You know, religion is just some drug that makes you stupid and, and just leads to exploitation and human suffering. It's just an illusion. You have Freud that says that belief in God is a mental disorder. It's an emotional disorder. And you, you get Thomas Huxley called uh, Darwin's bulldog 
who says that the priests are like these poisonous priests, are like poisonous snakes that kill society, and science is like Hercules, who as a baby was born and, and crushed in his hands all the poisonous snakes. Ooh. And so previously in all the great universities of Europe, unless you were in line with the church, you couldn't get a job. You couldn't teach in a university. And so it goes to the opposite extreme, where if you are religious, you can't get a job in a university. And it's payback time. And so suffice it to say, because of this, well, again, go back to the pendulum analogy. If you go back to the pendulum analogy, then you have this fanatical religion, torturing people, murdering people, uh, suppressing science, suppressing knowledge, and it, it goes to the other extreme, where religion is just the enemy, where you know, religion is the enemy, and if you want to be, let's say, if you want to do research in any field, you have to assume methodological atheism. You know, whatever your, and, and this was the standard for academia in the 20th century. Whatever your personal views are, you have to assume for the purpose of your scholarship and research that there's no God. And so the point I wanted to make is that if you go back to the pendulum, and so this, say, materialistic, atheistic reaction to awful religion, you know, really bad religion, and, and the assumption that the natural philosophy, the necessary philosophy to conduct good science is materialism. If you want to be a serious scientist, you must assume that there's really nothing in the universe except matter. That includes your consciousness, which is sort of an unusual configuration of matter. So what's happening now is the historical force that pushed, the, let's say, the Western universities or Western science, that historical force pushed it to materialism and atheism as a default philosophy for rational thinking. I remember when I was at Harvard, I was in one class, we were studying a, a group called Mimonsas who were really centered on these very elaborate fire sacrifices. And so we read an ancient text in Sanskrit and it was about how if you, you, know, if you chant these mantras and perform the sacrifice, uh, then you get all these results. I, I remember the professor, a nice guy, a friend of mine, you know, the professor said, so I, you know, I assume that none of us believe that. So I, I had to raise my hand and say, well, you know, about <laughs> that. Anyway, so, so just to conclude this, so there was this historic, there was this momentum thing. You get awful religion, which finally the pendulum swings the other way. It goes all the way to philosophical materialism as the official doctrine of science and scholarship in general. But because religion in the West is not so awful anymore, they don't have power. They can't kill people. They can't torture people, at least not legally. And so therefore, because the force that was pushing society all the way to this fanatical secularism, fanatical materialism, the force is just so weak that the pendulum's starting to come back. And so what you see now is a, as a historian, I can tell you, as a dramatic, amazing intellectual revolution going on where more and more scholars, whether they're in the fields of philosophy or biology or neurology or you know, whatever field they're in, they're starting to say that materialism, or they call it physicalism, the idea that there's nothing real except matter, does not and cannot explain all of reality as we experience it. 
and therefore it is a failed attempt to give a complete explanation of reality. And there are more and more scientists who are rebelling against philosophical materialism as the default worldview of a scholar or a scientist. So these are very exciting days to be alive. Apart That's from, right. Apart from the highly intellectual politics we're witnessing every day. That was a joke. Right, that right. Was... <laughs> so just, just to summarize, um, the, up to the current moment, right, we have... It's now an antithesis is swing, swinging back where now we're in this like post postmodern super relativistic culture, right? And eventually it, the synthesis is coming soon where, you know, this hyper relativism, hyper materialism, it just can't work and oh, we'll yeah, come yeah. back. The synthesis is really visible. It's almost like the sun on rising on the horizon. You can see it coming. Absolutely. Where... Because if, if you go back before all this crazy fanaticism, if you look at the Greco-Roman world, for example, which the Renaissance is trying to resuscitate, um, even in the school of Aristotle, it's understood that there's physics and there's metaphysics. And meta means after. So, you know, this is, this is coming from the Aristotelian school. Physics and, 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 and metaphysics. It, it's just like if you're a biologist and I'm a geologist, it's not that, you know, we're fighting each other. You're studying certain things. I'm studying geology. Someone else is studying astronomy. Or, or, you know, we're all working together. It's just trying to put together the puzzle of what this world is. And so before all this fanaticism triggered this wild pendulum swinging, uh, everyone took it for granted because they had common sense that physics and metaphysics are working together to explore different dimensions of reality. And to give an example, you see, because I mean, nowadays the, the amount of sort of philosophical understanding among people in general is somewhere between zero and a very big negative number. Give example, <laughs> to give you an example, uh, people don't notice that, our, that, that democracy, democracy and equal rights are based on a religious assumption. Right there in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, which is, by the way, a technical philosophical term. Self-evident means that it proves itself. It's an epistemological term, which means it requires no evidence outside of itself. Just like, for example, if someone asks you, why do you believe there's a real world outside your own mind, which you can't prove, by the way. Um... And why do we accept that? Because the world presents it to you, to your consciousness, in such a way that it, you, it, it's self-evident. It proves itself to you. It's like, let's say you're sleeping and, and dreaming. You're dreaming. You wake up. Uh, you can't prove that the world you see when you're awake is more real than your dream. You can't prove that. But... It presents itself to you in such a way that it becomes self-evident that this world has a higher degree of reality than the world of my dream. Mm -hmm. And so that's the term Jefferson used, which also is a term Lord Chaitanya used, by the way. Referring to the Vedas, the same technical term. So we hold these truths to be self-evident that we're created equal. Now, why did Thomas Jefferson and some of his friends who helped him write it, you know, the DOI, Declaration of Independence, why did he say we hold these truths to be self-evident that we're created equal? Because 
Empirically, scientifically, it is absurd to say we're equal. You can give human beings any conceivable kind of test. You know, we can get a group of human beings and test them in terms of their athletic ability, artistic ability, mathematical ability, uh, how beautiful they are, and, you know, whatever. And every conceivable test will show that human equality is absurd. And so what we do for our political system, our justice system, our social system is we put aside all scientific evidence and we base our civilization on an empirically unprovable metaphysical assumption, which is that we're equal. So we actually subordinate physical science to metaphysical understanding. Mm. Okay, one more question from a friend from Cam. Cam. How does one <laughs> yeah. How does one who has no hope in his own capability and the world as a whole attract the Lord's mercy and grace in healing and renewing of one's heart to become an instrument of the Lord's love? Wow, what a beautiful question. Yeah, he's a very beautiful soul also. So That was really nice. Um Yes, if you've given up on your own power and, you know, given up on the world because you made the big mistake of reading the news, then, um, then you're, you are a great candidate for spiritual advancement. Because, and this is not only in Krishna consciousness, but in so many, you know, world religions. Everybody, even in, let's, for example, in Islam, uh, the Islamic tradition historically had its bhakti yogis, they were called Sufis. And, and even if you look at the Buddhist traditions, like Pure Land Buddhism, you know, it's based on devotion. So, so practically all the world religions figured out that it's really about personal devotion to a super consciousness, which is personal. And so um, if I realize I can't do it and the world is like ridiculous, then... Yeah, you are in a perfect position to engage in bhakti, to give yourself to wholeheartedly and to depend fully. That's what Krishna says in the Gita, by the way, if I can quote the good book. Yeah. I'm a Gita thumper. So, uh, <laughs> Krishna, Krishna says in chapter 18 of the Gita, Tameva sharanangacha sarvabhavena varata Go to him alone, to the Lord. Go to him alone for shelter with all your being, really. Sarva Bhavena, literally, with all your being. And so, um, yeah, it's like, like, let's say I go to a gym and I have a personal trainer. A little late for me for that one, but, but let's say I go to a, you know, I'm still dreaming. So let's say I go to a gym <laughs> I have, and I, I have a personal trainer and the trainer is saying, I, I, and the trainer says, okay, now I want you to, no, 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 I know that. I know how to do it. I can do it. Just let me add it. It's like, why were you paying a personal trainer? And right. so as long as we think, stand aside, I can do this. <laughs> and, you know, we can't really practice bhakti yoga. But if you realize that, you know, I took all my best shots, shot my silver bullet, nobody went down. You know, my false ego didn't go down. My material desires didn't go down. Nothing's going down. So at that point, 
you were actually ready for bhakti yoga. To really just give yourself whole, wholeheartedly to the Lord. And it's not that eternally you're just going to be like a, uh, you know, like, I don't do the thinking around here. I just surrender. It's like, for example, let's say you go to a doctor and you have a serious illness that's treatable. As long as you think, okay, I know as well as a doctor and, you know, what the hell does he know? But if you have a good doctor, say you have a good doctor that can really cure you, you have to just let go and let the doctor do his or her thing. And so in the same way, the point is not eternal, just total submission where you just stop thinking, okay, I have one good idea, surrender to Krishna. It's the last original idea I'm ever going to have because once I surrender, I'm going to eternally just be like this sort of breathing robot or something. No, the point is that you surrender to Krishna so that he can help you to come back to your pure state in which you're free. Because once you, the soul, become pure, then you're free to do whatever you want because everything you want to do is appropriate. And so the idea of just, you know, surrendering obedience and all that, that's what you do with a good doctor if you're not a doctor. And then once you're cured, then you're a free soul. Hmm. Excellent. Okay, let's uh, move on to some language stuff. Oh boy, language. So, <laughs> I love language, by the way. So I've, I'm in China now. I've been all over Asia for like five years now. And uh, yeah, learning, learning the local languages has like changed a lot for me. Ch how I see the world and even how I, how I speak English has changed a lot from learning these Asian languages. Um, all right, my first question, I think I heard Prabhupada talk about this. Um, the, the name... Christ comes from Krishna. Is that right? Uh, it's a it's a sweet idea. Not really linguistically. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, actually, I mean the word Christos in Greek, because the New Testament was written in Greek. Christos is just a translation of Messiah in Hebrew, Messiah. So, so Christos is a Greek word for Messiah, and. Um, now I can't say it's totally unrelated. I mean, you'd have to. It is originally a Greek word. You have to look up the etymology of the Greek word Christos, which means the... Uh, and the Messiah, by the way, in Hebrew means the anointed one. In Sanskrit, that would be Abhishek, Abhishikta, like one who's anointed. The, interestingly, the word Messiah, I mean, Messiah in Hebrew, in ancient Jewish culture, Israeli culture, the Messiah was not mostly... It was not, for the most part, a religious figure. It was actually a political, military figure. So, for example, Cyrus the Great, the great Persian emperor who conquered Babylon and, and released the Jews from servitude in Babylon, sent them back to Israel and rebuilt their temple. Uh, he's considered a messiah. Uh, David, of course, King David is the paradigmatic messiah. And uh, Judas Maccabee, the hero of the Hanukkah story, who at least fought the Greeks to a standoff, um, he's also a messiah. So, anyway, that's a whole other topic, but I'm going to that now. What was really going on 2,000 years ago? But... Um, yeah, so whether the word for anointed one is related to Krishna, you would have to look up the etymology of, um, of the Greek word Christos. Mm, I see. It is still, well, like you said, it's a sweet idea, <laughs> but it, I still, 
I don't know, something inside me really is clinging to it. it I just, I can't see it as a coincidence. The, the, okay. the sounds are so similar with, with Christo the, and Krishna. But those are called false cognates. Words <laughs> that sound alike. But the Greek name Christos is derived from the earlier word, I'm having to read Greek here, Christos, meaning anointed, and which became the Christian theological term for the Messiah. Uh, the spelling of the Greek name Christos suggests a, de- a derivation from the word. I'm reading the Greek. Uh, my Greek is a little rusty. Uh, Christos, which in earlier forms of the language principally meant useful, and in modern Greek means ethical, righteous, good, just, upright, virtuous. So it's it's a good word. It's a cool word. But um, the word Krishna from the root Krish, which means to pull, to draw, and hence to attract. Mm-hmm. And na is an abbreviation of nun, like ananda. So Krishna is the source of pleasure. So um, if we say that Christos is based on Krishna, I uh, hate to be the spoiler here, but if we say that the word that the word Christos is based on Krishna, there's one sense in which I think it's definitely not the case, and that is that let's say Krishna culture was known in the ancient Middle East. Of course, they would have thought it was horrible because, you know, all the forms of Krishna and everything. But, so let's say, I mean, if you claim that, that Krishna was known in the ancient Middle East and around the time of Christ, and so they wanted to give a name which kind of uh, sounded like Krishna or something, that's extremely unlikely. You know, mm-hmm. history. I mean, there's, I wouldn't bet your bottom dollar on that one. And so, and so if you have Christos as the translation, apparently as the translation, because Greek, back then when the New Testament was written, Greek was English. You know, it was just the, it was English. And so they translated the word Messiah. They were trying to translate Messiah, and they felt the closest word was Christos, to say that the fanatical followers of Jesus who composed the, or let's say the followers of Jesus, who composed the New Testament that they were sort of closet Hare Krishnas and they picked a word to translate Messiah, Messiah, which kind of sounded like Krishna. It was kind of like a dog whistle to their Vaishnava brothers in India. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, to each his own, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, moving on. Um, yeah. Prabhu. This is one thing, one word all the Iskander people will say, right? So first of all, what does Prabhu actually mean? What, what's the morphology for this word Prabhu? Is it Sanskrit? It is definitely Sanskrit. Okay. In fact, if you want, let's see. Oh, I guess, whoops, someone convinced me to reinstall Google, and so now I lost all this. You know, i got to actually find everything again. Okay, um, I'll read you what the... Uh, what the word in the Sanskrit dictionary, what the word Prabhu actually means. I can, uh, let's see, I'm going to, they use this dictionary from this old German, actually Monier Williams, that's the one I use. That, that's like the standard dictionary everyone uses. Sanskrit English dictionary from Oxford. So the word Prabhu, it's from, it's from Bhu, it's from the verb to be. In fact, the be in the English word to be is from, uh, that's what boo comes from. And then pra means like very or forth and so on. 
By the way, I can't, I, you know, I always say that um, it's funny because the most famous lines probably in English literature, to be or not to be, that is a question. And in the Bhagavad Gita, the first point is to be Arjuna, to be or not to be, that's not the question. But anyway, so <laughs> poor Shakespeare, anyway, maybe in another life. So, the word Prabhu as an adjective means excelling, mighty, powerful, because it has a sense of existence goes forth from it. It's sort of like existence at a high level. That's kind of really, if you look up what the prefix pra means, and then bhu. So it's, yeah, it's very much Sanskrit. In fact, Krishna uses a direct cognate word from that same root when he says in the Bhagavad Gita, Ahang Sarvasya Prabhava, I'm the source of everything. So the word for source is prabhava and prabhu. It's just it's the same word. They're just from you know, they're just different formations from the same root. So it can mean excelling, mighty, powerful, rich, abundant. And another interesting point is, in that sense, as an adjective, it's both masculine and feminine. And and, and then as a noun, masculine noun, it means lord, king, like the prabhu, chief or leader, and so on. So that's the word prabhu. And the word, the name Prabhupada, does that come from Prabhu also? Or? Prabhupada means foot, or also uh, it can mean location or place or abode, because um, it's kind of like where you're standing. It's, it's like, you know, where you are, where you stand, where your feet are, so it comes to mean, it also means place and so on. So Prabhupada can mean uh, Prabhupada who is at the feet of the Lord or that he is the Prabhu, he is the Lord as a great spiritual leader. Not, you know, Lord, capital L. But he is a great spiritual leader and uh, so other people are at his feet. So it can have, those are different kinds of Sanskrit compounds. It's a Sanskrit compound, Prabhupada. Hmm, okay. Well, it seems like Sanskrit is like Chinese where, like, Prabhu is from uh, smaller component parts, but you wouldn't call it a compound, right? Well, no, pra, no, Prabhu is, it's actually not, it, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a compound technically in the sense that it's not two words. Pra, right. pra is not a word, it's a prefix. Right, yeah, that's what I've been picking, like, there's so many prefixes and suffixes and like they they can combine as words, but then they can also still be used as prefixes and suffixes for bigger words, also, right? Actually, I'll give you an example, and because English still retains a lot of the structure of Sanskrit, so that for I'll give you an example where in Sanskrit you say like "bhu," like like this word "bhu," and then you can put different prefixes. You make "prabhu," "anubhu," like "anubhavati." You can say. Uh, bibu, which is another sense of the word, bibu or sambu, that you can make it by adding different prefixes. We still have that from Sanskrit because one very common Sanskrit uh, stem, you can call it, is uh, vart, like pravartate, like pravrti, nivrti, and so on. And we still have that stem in English, vart, we spell it V-E-R-T, vart. And we add prefixes. So you can say invert, revert, subvert, pervert, extrovert, introvert, and so on. So that thing where you take a stem like vert and then it put different prefixes to, to, to create different words, that's, that's Sanskrit. Mm, excellent. 
Uh, one more word that I didn't, I actually thought about this last night as I was uh, reading one of Prabhupada's books, Mayavadi. So, yeah, this is a big word that, you know, especially in the text, um, I don't know if it's, I guess it's it's our tradition, right? From Lord Chaitanya all the way down to Prabhupada is this like very anti-Mayavadi, um, yeah. you know, have, ethos. Honk if you refute Mayavadi. So, <laughs> yeah, Maya Maya means, of course, illusion in a sense. Mm-hmm. Vada, Vada in Sanskrit means speech, and therefore it can also it, it's it and Vada as a suffix is something like. The English suffix ism. Ah, uh, okay. So Maya oh, okay. ism, and, <laughs> okay. and so and and Maya vadi vadi is the one who claims. So vada can be the claim that claiming something a, a truth claim, and the one who makes the claim is vadi. So you can have Maya vada, which is Maya ism, and then Maya vadi, the, you know, an advocate of Maya vada. And so the reason we, we call them that, with, of course, great affection, the reason we call them that is because um, they claim that this world is just an illusion in a radical sense. In a mm. radical sense. For example, um, like, you know, there's, there are social science studies that show that you can have a bunch of people witness the same event and then describe what they saw, and they'll give different descriptions which is, you know, very encouraging for our legal system and witnesses and all that. So, so, there, so, so that's an illusion. Let's say we get something wrong, but it's not, but a radical illusion, let's say, for example, you know, God forbid there's, there's an automobile accident and someone's seriously injured or killed, and so they have, they have three eyewitnesses that diff, give different accounts. Now, if one witness comes into the court and says, actually, there were no cars, there was no street, there is no spoon. Yeah, exactly. Then you're getting into the, a, a radical sense of illusion. And that's what the Maya bodies are saying. It, it means, it's called someone a Maya body. The, the idea is not just, well, they got it wrong, but they, are, they got it radically wrong because they're rejecting the real world. And this world is temporary, but it's real. They're rejecting the real world as an illusion, and they're rejecting the form of Krishna as an illusion. Ironically, you know, we always hear that Shankara debated the Buddhists and all that. And by the way, he wasn't the only one. Actually, some of the most effective uh, opponents of Buddhism were the Karma Mimangsa people, ironically. And, um, but actually, in, in Madhyamaka Buddhism, you know, the middle path Buddhism, they reject the idea that this world is just illusion. In one sense, you, you know, their, their Shunyavad, their voidism or emptiness or other terms. What they actually mean by that in the middle path, I mean, they call it the middle path because they reject the extreme of Mayavad, that, that there's no world. And so, they say the world is empty in the sense, and it's in the sense actually similar to what Krishna says in the Gita, that if you, if you look at any object in this world, any object at all, uh, any material object, it's constantly in flux. Like, for example, Herodotus, the pre-Socratic Greek philosopher, you know, shout if you like Herodotus, um, he's famous for having said that you can't step in the same river twice. Because it's, and so I kind of do a little riff on that, 
trying to sound cool by using the word riff, although I'm actually too old to sound cool. But anyway, so I do a version of that, which is you can't breathe in the same body twice. Because as we know, our body, I mean, there's literally millions of processes going on in your body. Your body is this, in fact, there's been a revolution in microbiology in the last 20 years or so, in the sense that, or 30 years, in the sense that Darwin, for example, and this is why many, many serious scientists at the best universities trying to reject Darwin. Because Darwin's idea is based on what is today considered a primitive notion of the complexity of uh, biological processes. And so then you get, you know, from Darwin, you get 20 years later, 30, you know, with, with the progress of science, they start to realize, wow, actually, uh, you know, biological organisms are like really complicated. Cells are just like, you know, it's like crazy complicated. And so now, in the last 20 years or so or more, they found it's like ridiculously crazy, absurdly complicated. So that a cell is very much analogous to a totally digitized Amazon distribution center. Mm -hmm. There are motors and cells, there are distribution mechanisms, there's code, there's, I mean, it's crazy. It's insane how complicated biological processes are. And so uh, I got that. What, we, what was the thing we were, we were talking about? Mayavadi? Yeah, Mayavadi. So, um, so therefore, in your body, everything's constantly in flux. So the Buddhist point was that you cannot point to anything in this world and say that is, 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 is that thing and nothing else. In other words, let's say you point to your body. Your body's constantly changing. So which body? Or even if you point to, let's say, a mountain, as we know, erosion, or sometimes by seismic uh, activities, a mountain is growing. Some mountains are growing. Some mountains are shrinking. Everything is changing. And, 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 and there, you could say there's micro-erosion on the mountain every time the wind blows and, and it rains and everything. And so you can't even point to a stone or a hill and say it's just that thing. It's that fixed object. Because everything is in flux, which, by the way, Krishna also says in the Gita. In chapter 8, where he says, Adibhuto Kshadobhava, that the governing principle of the material world is Kshadobhava. Things are constantly in flux. And so, so ironically, and this is, I've never really thought of this before, but it, it's really ironic. There are some ways in which the Buddhists, and there are great debates with the, um, also they debated Shankar. I mean, it was, it was like a melee. It was just kind of like, you know, it's like one of those, like, like, you know, some, one of those wrestling matches where everybody jumps in the ring at the same time. So it was like, it was Shankara and, and the Buddhists, the Mimamsas, I mean, really brilliant Mimamsas like Kumari Lavata. It was the Vaishnavas later, a little later when you get to Ramanuja. And they were just going at it. It was a free-for-all. And so, so ironically, the Buddhists, in some ways, accept the material world as real more than the Mayavadis. Mm-hmm. As I was uh, listening to you talk about Mayavadi, I remembered, um, I think I may be the first person to coin this term in English. Uh, it's, it's just like Mayavadi in Sanskrit, where it's like, it has like a strong 
aspect to it. Anyway, I call these people ball worshippers. Ball? <laughs> no, like, um, like atoms and planets. So the materialistic um, view is, is all about balls. It's little balls that make everything up, and then it's big balls in the heavens. So I just call them ball worshippers. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, there's a video on my channel about that. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, interestingly, science cannot, you cannot do science unless you make metaphysical assumptions. Mm. First, Descartes first brought up the point. Descartes brought up this point, the, the type that's called Cartesian skepticism. And he was a great scientist, by the way. I mean, I mean, a great scientist. He's unfortunately people have forgotten that, but he's, he's in digital technology. Is still using some of his stuff, some of his math. But um, he said that he said, what, "What if you doubt everything? What if you actually doubt everything you think you know?" And so, what if you are a, as he put it, a uh, some evil genius has captured you, taken your brain out of your body, put you in a laboratory and just kind of feeding it, you know, keeping your brain alive. And what if everything you think you know is just an illusion, which is you're being programmed to experience? Like, for example, what if there is no Asia? What if there is no Earth? What if, you know, the body you think you have doesn't really exist? What if your friends don't really exist? Your family, your, your life history? What if all of that you were just programmed to believe? And so, of course, in modern philosophy, they, tend to, they, they call it the brain and the vet. That's kind of the modern philosophy. And so if you want, and obviously this radical skepticism, all it will lead you to is uh, some type of uh, serious mental disorder. And so you have to make that leap and say, no, I'm not a solipsist. I believe that there's something outside my mind. And um, oh, it's funny. What was it? There was one philosopher, one thinker that was kind of foolishly started preaching solipsism. So one of the students was joking, said the scary thing is when he died, we all go with him. Anyway, so um, so to get back out into the world, a scientist has to make a claim, has to claim that there's a real world out there and you can't prove it, but you claim it's self-evident. And so it's also self-evident that it's wrong, let's say, to go and murder innocent children. I mean, you know that's wrong. And actually, you know that's wrong as deeply as you know that there's a real world out there. And so therefore, we live in a bidimensional universe because there are some metaphysical facts, like it's wrong to kill innocent people or, or to torture them, or that there's some important sense in which we're equal or that yesterday really existed, which you can't prove, by the way, empirically. Mm, that's right. And so we make all these metaphysical assumptions, democracy. So our whole civilization, our, our life, our sanity, is based on metaphysical assumptions, and we assume these things to be true because they present themselves as powerfully, as self, as powerfully self-evident as the fact that there's an external world the physical world which allows science to happen. So science and spirituality, ultimately, epistemologically, in terms of knowledge, are resting on the same structure. There's no difference structurally between what a spiritualist is doing and an empiricist. They're simply seeking 
they're claiming self-evident epistemic starting points in different ways, one in the physical realm, one in the metaphysical realm. But since we base our entire civilization on rejecting all of science and making metaphysical claims, namely we're equal, actually people give their lives for their family, for their loved ones. People give their lives for freedom, another metaphysical entity. People give their lives, in other words, they give everything they have that's physical for something metaphysical. So not only is the universe bidimensional, not only is there a metaphysical, a real metaphysical dimension to the world, but we often subordinate the physical to the metaphysical. Okay. Um, so those are all my language questions. I, I honestly could talk about Sanskrit grammar all day. I actually really like that stuff. But so now I want to talk about culture, especially in ISKCON stuff. So <laughs> I, I, I feel like this yeah. first question. All right. So I have these two questions now that are like going to sound really harsh. <laughs> I just want to preface it by saying I'm purposely over exaggerating my point so we can maybe find a golden mean in the middle somewhere. So I've noticed I've been to many ISKCON centers all over the place, and I've noticed this, uh, uh, this trend now to talk about Vaishnava etiquette. Um, basically, I think it's a total sham. I think etiquette is for children, and uh, it's superficial, and we don't need to study this because if we really pa practice the, the path as laid down by Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita and all the other Prabhupada books, we will naturally have all of these right etiquette behaviors. Um, but if we were going to, you know, stop chanting for a moment and, you know, start with, you know, practicing some kind of, you know, social, cultural, ethical discipline, I think it would make way more sense if we focused on the uh, the virtues that Krishna talks about, namely pridelessness, truthfulness, cleanliness, humility, etc., I think there's something real there. But you know, just focusing on etiquette, it's <laughs> dare I say a little Mayavadi-esque. But you know, it's well, it, it just seems superficial to me. Having never focused on etiquette, I mean, I trying to understand what you mean. It's I understand what you're saying. I understand. I mean, that's very clear. Um, you mean sort of like this kind of finishing school? I'm, 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 not sure what the, I'm not sure what the focus on etiquette consists of. So lectures will be on etiquette instead of... What, what are some of the principles, the etiquette principles? That are, I have no idea. Um, like um, how, how to uh, offer obeisances, how to bow, how to how to speak to superiors and equals and inferiors and, you know, it's, it's just etiquette stuff, but it's, you know, Krishna consciousness based, I guess. Sorry for that, sorry for that, Jan. That Jan <laughs> did not indicate absolute boredom, but... <laughs> I would say that, you know, myself being a very big fan of Jane Austen, um, I I have to say that I'm a writer. Uh, you know, I just finished a novel and I'm finished. I'm working on Mahabharata, and so I've, uh, she's kind of like a writing guru, Jane Austen. But I have some attraction 
obviously, to sort of the, um, what the word be? Jane Austen's the first person to laugh at, if not bash, uh, hypocritical outward manners that are not, that don't correspond to a real inner state of generosity, of, of, of reverence in the right situations, of, uh, you know, of virtue. So I'll tell you why, I'll, well, I'll give, if I can, I'll give an argument. I know more about, I think, Jane, you know, the world of Jane Austen than I do about what they're teaching in those classes. But so, so, I'm, so what I'm going to defend, what I'm going to defend is my concept of um, etiquette, which I think is, is I mean, you could say it's Vaishnava, but in a sense it's universal because See, in a sense, there's a confusion there linguistically because I don't mean what, what you said, but <clears throat> I think every society mandates or teaches or encourages or legally requires, however they do it, um, that certain deference be given to superiors and you know certain behaviors considered appropriate in relation to inferiors. I'll give you an example. You know, Jane Austen's writing at a time which is completely pre Well, it's, it, the Industrial Revolution is just starting to kind of pick up a little steam. But still, in her time, and certainly from her point of view, ladies and gentlemen live in the country. You know, they, 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 li they live in nature. And in Jane Austen, you know, London's just kind of like this dark place where people do bad things. Although there are some good people there, which she knows. I mean, she's very... But... So... So, so, you know, how do you, so in those days, because it was, there, there were no, there was no social uh, care network. I mean, there, there, there were no government programs for the poor. There was no, there was no safety net. There was no, there was nothing because you have a much older culture based on the land in England, which you see very clearly in these books, is that in every village, let's say, or every little settlement, you know, the richest person there was considered morally responsible to, to relieve human suffering. So, for example, in Pride and Prejudice, uh, Elizabeth is just starting to learn that Darcy is not the villain she thought he was, and she goes there to, to Pemberley and realizes she just, she just, like, threw away one of the greatest fortunes in England based on a misunderstanding of the person that proposed to her, and she's thinking, oh, my God. So, anyway... One of the things that changes her mind, and this is, by the way, the most popular romantic novel in the English language, according to Fultz. One of the things that changes her mind is that she's talking to the housekeeper, who's not just a housekeeper, she's like the lady that manages the house. It's considered a very respectable position. And she's telling Elizabeth, because Darcy's gone, he's away. And they're just, it, it, another interesting thing, back then, it's very clear, and, and Jane Austen was... was, was understood to be a very realistic writer. She kind of invented the realistic English novel, telling what the world really like. And so you could go, you know, if you were, you know, lady or gentleman, you go to any house of any rich person and, and request a private tour. And if it, there wasn't something really going on, they were kind of obliged to give you a tour of the house. And then Elizabeth, who has this notion of Darcy being the villain, but then the lady that managed, more like a house manager, she starts to explain that, yeah, he's famous for his generosity. He helps the poor. 
no one, in other words, anyone in, within his reach, anyone in his part of England who is really can't eat properly, really doesn't have a home, he's morally obliged to go. And, and you get another Jane Austen novel. Again, this is what was really going on. Emma, where Emma Woodhouse, her father is the richest guy in their area. And uh, she personally, she's this beautiful young girl. You know, snobby, but still. And then she learns. She becomes the heroine. But she's this beautiful young lady, maybe 20 years old, richest family in town. But she personally takes food and carries it to all the poor families. She personally brings food to the poor families in the village, even though they're the lowest and she's the highest. So, so, so every society, but then again, they had, there were other restrictions. Like, for example, if you were in a lower social class, you didn't just go up to somebody and start chatting. You had to be introduced. In fact, there's that joke that there were two Englishmen trapped on this you know, island, and for years they never spoke to each other. And the reason is they weren't introduced. But anyway, <laughs> so I guess what I'm trying to say, just by giving you a little example from, from England 200 years ago, is that the Vaishnavas may have a particular way of doing respect for a superior how you treat an equal, you know, what your attitude should be towards someone less fortunate than you. And so it'd be interesting, to, and this is even interesting, to see to what extent are, are you know, the Vaishnav ethical requirements, to what extent are they really that different? Are they universal? Is it just what any good person would do? So my, my thinking is that it's, the, I'm not a history scholar, but I just get, a sense that it is kind of a universal thing. So basically when we call each other Prabhuji, Mataji, all of these things are to show respect, oh, to God, show I, honor. I don't do so much Mataji. Yeah, I, I don't I don't either, but <laughs> I'm I'm saying like uh the the reason behind it is it's virtue. You know, it's honor, virtue, humility, these sorts of things. But so my point though is that if, if you focus on the reason underneath the external behavior, then you can, you know, we can say in America, we don't need to say Prabhu, we can say sir or brother or, I don't know, master, actually, teacher. I'm going I'm to argue, I'm going to argue in favor of a little more formality. Okay. It's, it's, it's my inner Jane Austen. So, and so here's the argument that I would give, that um, Aristotle wrote a famous... Oh, here we go. I love Aristotle. He's my favorite. <laughs> Honk if you love Aristotle. So, Aristotle wrote a famous book called The Nicomachean Ethics. Oh, yeah. I just published a book on it. Oh, really? Yeah. So, Aristotle says that basically, if you practice virtue, it'll become your second nature. That you, that, that you really become a virtuous person. It's like sadhana. I mean, consider the notion of sadhana, which is practice, that in, even in devotion, because we have, we have this love for Krishna inside of us because we're souls, but it's covered. But if we practice acting as if we love Krishna, it brings it out. So I would take the notion of sadhana bhakti, I would take Aristotle's idea that you, that, you, know, you, you become virtuous by practicing virtue, and I would say that um, calling someone Prabhu is if 
someone is not serious about it. I would say if someone's not a serious practitioner, it's just like a speech habit. Okay, you somehow or other, you belong to the Hare Krishna movement. You know, be careful what you join. But anyway, somehow or other, you, you belong to the Hare Krishna movement. And, um, and you know, you're supposed to say Prabhu, so you say Prabhu as you rip somebody off or as you throw them out of the street with, you know, with not even food to eat, but you call them Prabhu as you abuse them. So, I mean, obviously, I think what you're talking about there is hypocrisy. And there is no culture in the world that a hypocrite will not pervert. And, and on, on the other hand, I think if we look not at the hypocrites, and we have them just as every religion has them, if we look not at the hypocrites, but if we look at the sincere followers, I think for them, the external form, while not sufficient in itself, it is just the external part of it, but it does actually help to shape the right consciousness. And, and that's something, for example, let me give you something. We'll go back again to uh, Jane. Jane Austen, that is that um, there, there's, a, there's a, and she's very God conscious, by the way. I mean, she came, she was a guru coolie. Her father was a minister, her brothers, her uncles, her grandfather. She, that's why she's the, last person, she's the last person buried inside Winchester Cathedral because she came from a, a family of, of ministers. And in fact, she wrote six complete novels, and half of them, the hero of the story, the romantic hero, is a clergyman. So, you know, it's a very interesting person. But anyway, so one, like, really iron rule in Jane Austen, if you're a lady or a gentleman, is that no matter how you feel, even if you want to kill the person sitting in front, you know, across from you because they're such a jerk, that there's a certain minimum level of decorum, of politeness, that you just, you do, you just keep it going. It doesn't mean you like the person. It doesn't mean you're ever going to see that person again. It doesn't mean you approve of, of all the nonsense the person is doing, but you maintain a certain level of uh, peace in society. And, and in a sense, it reminds you that even this scoundrel is ultimately part of God. And so I found in my own life, because I really, when I read these books, and of course, it, 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 it's the whole culture she's so brilliantly presenting, it actually changed the way I speak. It changed the way I, you know, on my good days, you know, having a lot more good days, but, you know, the way I behave, the way I speak, and I found it's made me much more peaceful, and it's improved my relationships with people. I don't make enemies. I don't, it's, it's really, so I think it's like sadhana civility. Mm. And I don't think we should throw out the baby with the bathwater just because there are, are the hypocrites who disgust us with their, you know, with their shallow use of, of, of this culture. I don't think the hypocrites should persuade us to discard what is ultimately a valuable culture. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. Um, Mm. <laughs> I guess we can move on. <laughs> uh, on a, a similar note, um, I see some devotees, you know, especially Western ones, who uh, I feel are swept away by this LGBT, you know, 
propaganda, basically. Some are even saying that this is a big rampant problem in ISKCON and we need to stop it and discrimination is bad and stuff. So my my counterpoint to that is, well, first of all, I don't think it's true. Second of all, if the worst possible thing happens where someone is gay and then they leave ISKCON or even commit suicide because of this issue, uh, I don't think it's from discrimination. I think someone leaves a religious institution because they no longer find it attractive and someone commits suicide because they have mental health issues. And that should be treated by a psychologist or a, a guru or, you know, someone who's just qualified to deal with that situation. Does yeah, that well, I, I, I was the first sort of quote-unquote biggest gun leader to start uh, advocating for gay devotees. I, you know, I believe there are two genders, but anyway, so um, because, like, from my point of view, as someone trying to be a spiritual teacher, from my point of view, um, I couldn't care less what kind of body you have. It's like, I really don't care, uh, you know, and I don't care where you're starting from because it's not about where you're coming from, it's about where you're going to. And so if I'm trying to get to Krishna and you're trying to get to Krishna, I mean, obviously we're coming from different places, but who cares? And so my point, I wrote an essay on this actually, and, and, and I, I discovered a few things, like for example, there's no explicit reference to homosexuality in the Bhagavatam. It's actually not something, even the reference where, where, where Brahma, where these two, where these demons ran after Brahma, if you read the actual Sanskrit and if you read all the Acharya commentaries, it turns out that Brahma was sort of creating almost like these, not platonic forms, but kind of like these subtle templates for all the different items that, with which he was going to populate the world. And, and so he created sort of the template for, or, or the proto form of a very, very beautiful woman. And it's clear in the text and in, in, in the, the earlier commentaries that the demons are running after this woman. They're actually, and so when Brahma casts off this perfect form of woman that's going to be the template for creating females in the universe, when he casts it off, they go chase that. And, and no one wants the male Brahma. So, so also in the Manu Sanghita, in the Manu Sanghita, it says that homosexuality is not a big deal. It's not a big sin. And the reason is because, I mean, the reason is actually uh, kind of not so pleasant, but the reason it says that is because Manasangita is deeply concerned about uh, what in the Gita is called Varna Sankara, which literally means Varna mixing. Sankara actually means mixing. Varna mixing. And so because of Manasangita is deeply concerned about people marrying within their caste and because they reproduce and because, you know, gays, marriages, they don't reproduce naturally... And therefore, it's like they're not concerned with that. So, oh. so, so regarding your point, I agree. I mean, nowadays, nowadays, there are so many places in the world, even conservative leaders, like if someone comes to a temple, say a gay couple, who cares nowadays? <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone's got enough of their own. And so, I don't think anyone, I mean, you know, there's always some crazy people who use sort of moral conservatism to abuse other people, but 
I, I think the real point is that um, no one cares that much. If, if you go to a uh, temple, you're trying to be a devotee, and you're a good devotee, no one cares. And, and I believe, I mean, like they have gay pride parade, very bad idea. Uh, heterosexual parade, very bad idea. I agree. Yeah. I, I don't think sexuality is something that's suitable to flaunt in public. Mm. You know, that's why God made curtains and a light switch. And so... <laughs> So I think, in a sense, it's this. I think that the heteros, who are the, you know an overwhelming majority, I think they have so oversexed and, and degraded the world that, and, and they flaunt sexuality in public. So then people who are sexually homosexual think, okay, well, you know, because that's the standard. But the mm-hmm. idea of being proud of your sexuality, being proud of the fact that you are so stupid that you got a material body, you know, it's like really. I'm not proud of the fact that I'm heterosexual. It's like an embarrassment that I'm down here in the material world in the first place. Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah, so defining yourself in terms of your sexuality, whatever it is, is imbecilic. Because you're an imbecile, because you're, we are each other's souls. And so, okay, I'm a hetero-imbecile, I'm a homo-imbecile, I'm a trans-imbecile. <laughs> it's like, okay, don't even tell me what kind of imbecile you are. You know, just try to be spiritual and try to understand who you really are, which has nothing to do with mundane sexuality. Excellent. <laughs> we agree there. Um, this next one. Uh, so I hear many people talk about the spiritual world and the material world as if that's it. There's two worlds. But Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita says many times there are three worlds. So, oh, 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 that's something else. Okay, so what, what is he referring to with yeah, the three, three worlds. worlds. Yeah, very common term, Triloka. That's referring to the three levels of the material world. Oh, the three gunas? No, three levels. The the basically the upper class planets, the middle class planets. Oh, okay. That's Triloka. Hmm. So. Uh, <laughs> I still feel a little suspicious when I hear binaries and dualities. You know, like <laughs> okay. Let's see. Let's see if we can dissolve that duality there for you. Uh, okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, there's only one world, mm-hmm. which is the world, and in that world, there are different neighborhoods. So you could think of all the material universes as just sort of like you know, that's the a neighborhood. It's kind of like the penitentiary. So the material world is just, Prabhupada once said, it's like a cloud in the spiritual sky. Because if you think about it, there's only one thing, which is reality. And there's just one reality. And in that reality, there are, um, you know, there are higher and lower worlds based on, and, and of course, I mean, you're right, because there's all kinds of stuff going on out there in, in reality. I mean, you know, we hear about Shiva Lok and Devi Lok, and there's just, it's a big creation. It's a very big operation. But, but essentially, there is what, what's called in the Vedas the Paraloka, like the higher world. And, and then there's this world. And, uh, but even this world is within that spiritual world. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
So I've noticed uh, in general with dualities, you can transcend them by going back to one or up to three. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we we took the two worlds, made it one world with little parts inside. That, and yeah, duality also has the sense, the way Krishna uses the word dwandwa, duality. In fact, the word dwa, duo, I mean, you know, our English is from the Sanskrit. And so um, dualistic, dwandwa. So when Krishna talks about dwandwa, duality in the Gita, he's really talking about polarities. It's like, you know, victory and defeat, pain and pleasure, heat and cold. He's really talking about, I mean, so the word duality doesn't only mean there's two of something, it means there's somehow an opposition. Mm. So here's the word duality in the dictionary, the uh, often awful Apple dictionary. The quality or condition of being dual, that didn't help, an instance of, an instance of opposition or contrast between two concepts or two aspects of something, a dualism. An example, they give the photographs capitalized on the dualities of light and dark. So, for example, we learned that in Vaikuntha, in the spiritual world, spiritual sky, there are innumerable spiritual planets, Vaikuntha planets, but there's no opposition, and so there, it's, not, it's not dual. Oh, uh, okay. So Krishna, Krishna would not really call the material and spiritual worlds a duality. At least Krishna is using the word duality to mean oppositions, polarities, things that, you know... <laughs> against each other in some way, like light and dark. Hmm, that makes sense. Uh, I have one more, I guess, cultural question, and then I would like to talk about initiation, especially for my own personal sake. Oh, good. You um, have a major credit card? <laughs> I, have, I have two major credit cards. I have a Chinese card ready to go. <laughs> digital pay, you know, crypto. I got everything. I don't have crypto actually. But um <laughs> Oh, so east and west. I think this is an important thing now because um well, we're in a very globalized world, but there still does seem to be a, a duality here between east and west. Uh so I see it as the west is logos. In one word, it's logos. And the East, in one word, is dharma. So, first of all, that's my thesis. What do you think? Well, uh, <laughs> I would say that, I guess maybe because I've lived long enough or something. Or my, I've traveled to many, many countries like you, although not the part of the world you have. Actually, East Asia is really the one part of the world I haven't gone to. I've gone all over, you know, North South America and Europe and I've been to India and so on. But it seems that the deeper you get into the culture, the more you kind of think, oh, they're just people. Although, although to be fair, to be fair, there is an East-West thing and, and it was noticed even thousands of years ago. For example, the, the earliest documented, sort of well-documented contact between what we would call East and West is in the great wars between Persia and, and the Greek world. Because you had this Persian empire, you know, started by Cyrus. That's a whole other story, but he was actually an enlightened, enlightened ruler in many ways. But you have this, of course, he was gone. His successors inevitably were not quite up to the mark. But So you have this Persian empire, 
and then it, it butts up against the Greek world. And so naturally, that's what empires do. You know, they, they expand from their borders. They don't leapfrog, and so they just want to keep moving. And, and, and they want to just roll over the Greek world. And there are other reasons for that also, because the Greeks are kind of annoying them, because inevitably, for example, the Greeks will trade with the west coast of Turkey and, you know, and, and other areas like that, or Syria and Palestine. And sometimes they'll make alliances, and some of those people will kind of be emboldened by the Greek alliance, maybe don't pay their taxes to Persepolis, you know, the Persian king. So there are all kinds of little regional things going on. And, uh, and this really reaches ahead with a new power starting to rise in sort of the like, greater Greek world, which is Macedonia. And they're starting to kind of feel their oats. They're starting to feel their strength. And of course, ultimately, it, it's going to culminate in Alexander the Great, who's going to conquer the Persian Empire. But before that, you know, going back, uh, from the Persian or Eastern point of view, because ancient Persian, by the way, is a dialect of Sanskrit. It's a dialect of Vedic Sanskrit. So the Persian Empire goes right up to the border of India. Mm-hmm. or greater India, you know, because Afghanistan, like in the Mahabharata, I mean, Gandhari, the, the wife of Dhritarashtra, she comes from Kan- Gandhara, which now is called Kandahar. And so, you know, that's Afghanistan. And, and so the world of the Mahabharata goes all the way, you know, practically to the border of, it goes to the border of the Persian Empire. So, and there's tremendous influence. Like I said, ancient Persian is a dialect of ancient Vedic Sanskrit. And so, from that eastern point of view, from that eastern point of view, people in the West are like inappropriately individualistic, crazy individualistic, and they're disrespectful to their their seniors, and it's all this you know sort of like individualism, egalitarianism, and all that. Whereas from the Western point of view, the Eastern people tend to be obsequious. They bow down too much to their leaders, and they, and, and, et cetera, et cetera. So they each have a strong criticism of the other. Now, the person who kind of sees value in both and wants to put <clears> them <throat> together and dreams of a one-world program is Alexander the Great. Oh, that's me. <laughs> and that's why, yeah, that's why Alexander takes an Asian wife and, <clears throat> and, and has all his generals marry Asian women. Because he wants to bring these two cultures together. So then, of course, you get Rudyard Kipling saying, East is East and West is West, never the twain shall meet. One last thing about this is, um, I'll throw this in, because I think ultimately, when I read, say, Mahabharata or the Bhagavatam, I mean, when you look at the culture of ancient India at the time of the Pandavas and the time of Krishna, I mean, in some ways you could say it's definitely Asian, or, or, or Eastern, or but in other ways, in other ways not because if you like look at Rome, especially in the days of the Republic. By the time you get the Roman Empire, it's really it's becoming so multicultural that you know is it really a Roman Empire? And so, but if you look at the earlier days of Rome, um, they were extremely masculine. The their their sort of mythic creation story, like where do we come from? The god of war begot the founders of Rome 
uh, Romulus and Remus. So they were the founders of Rome were begotten by the god of war in the womb of a she-wolf. So these were very masculine people, yeah. and they were and they were you know they were like monsters of like engineering and warfare. I mean, they were really. And so they were, you know, this very masculine society, the Roman legions, you know, super organized and everything. And so then it kind of dialectically becomes its opposite. You get Italy, which becomes the most decentralized country for many centuries, the city-states. It kind of becomes a country sort of like make love, not war. And it kind of it becomes very different. So if we're talking about India 5,000 years ago, I think we have to be really careful of falling into uh, looking at it through the lens of later India. Because as Madhvacharya, or even are looking at India and thinking that's Vedic culture, Madhvacharya wrote a book on the Mahabharata in which he says that um, the text is very corrupt. Because writing didn't start in India until about 2,000 years ago, and uh, a little over 2,000 years ago. 2,300 years ago, and and so and and Madhvacharya, in our Sampradaya says the Mahabharata Sanskrit text we have today has really been, it's not the original. I mean, in some ways there's a lot of changes. Of course, we know the original story because of the Bhagavatam, which is not correct. But what I mean to say is, if you look, if you try to work your way back to what was really that quote-unquote Vedic culture, and if you take that as kind of a model, it's in, in, in some ways it's Western, and in, in some ways it's Eastern. Actually, if you sort of put aside the Western Hemisphere, just kind of bracket that, and just look at the rest of the world is really just one landmass. Mm. I mean, besides Australia, and you know, New Zealand, things like that, and Greenland. But you have, you have Europe, and then you get the Near East, and then it, and actually the Suez Canal is there because Africa is attached to the Middle East. So you have Africa, Europe, the Middle East, uh, South Asia, you know, the Russian lands, and then the Far East. Of course, Japan's an island. But so apart from the islands, the world is really just one big landmass. And if you look at that landmass on a Global map, India is actually in the center of the world. Mm. Yeah. And it, it was by far the richest. I mean, up to a few hundred years ago, like half the wealth of the world was in India. In terms of, you know, not capitalism, I mean, in terms of jewels and... Real wealth. Yeah, real wealth and, and, and produce, you know, ag, you know, all kinds of things. So, so it is true. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you about the East and the West, and there are some things in the East that I admire very much, and I wish we had them more in the West, and some things in the West I think are good. So I think it's kind of, they kind of balance each other. I mean, there would not be a Hare Krishna, there could not be a Hare Krishna movement without the West, outside of India. Because if you look at the world before the Western drive to modernity, I mean, in your wildest dreams, you wouldn't go out on the street anywhere and just chant Hare Krishna, because you would have a very shortened lifespan. And so, yeah. so the idea of religious freedom, the idea of, um, yeah, the idea of religious freedom, it's a Western concept, really. It comes from, uh, it comes from the Greco-Roman world. 
and, and, and then and the Renaissance brought it back. It seems like, yeah, the, the religious freedom from the West really expanded enormously, whereas like in India, there is religious freedom, but it doesn't really leave those borders, right? Yeah, because India always had religious freedom. India, we yeah. have to remember, is part of the Indo-European culture family, language and everything. And so, of course, you get to East Asia, you have different language families. But, but India really is part of the Indo-European civilization. By the way, unfortunately, I won't have too much more time. I hate to... Uh, no, that's fine. I'm still very gracious you gave me um, as much time so far. Um, so what do you think? Like 15 minutes? Is yeah, well, okay? so, yeah, yeah. And by the way, next time I talk, you should have like a little electronic board that tells how much I've won. You know, all the prizes, answering questions. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. There's there's so many things like that. I think of operations, uh, you know, it's <laughs> taking me a while. You know, a lot of other shows, they'll have like a soundboard to play cool sounds. I actually have one of those, but I'm just too lazy to, uh, not lazy, but I guess it's just not me. <laughs> not yet. Um, so as far as initiation, Yes. I've got my uh, my cash ready, Goswami. Um, <laughs> um, so I'll just tell you my my uh, place where I am now. So I've been doing 16 rounds for a while now, a year and a half, two years. I follow the four regs about 90% to 95% of the time. So to me now, the main benefit for initiation is And I don't think that'll happen if I if I don't get initiated. The main because benefit, you cut off there. The main benefit is um, is getting to 100% following the four regulative principles. Because right now I'm at 90%, which to me is an A minus, and I'm I can just do that forever. <laughs> you know, like it, especially in in East in East Asia. Um, like in Vietnam, there were times where, you know, someone would offer me something, and if I said no, it, like they were going to kill me. You know, like you have to accept generosity. Yeah. If someone was going to kill me, I would not say no. <laughs> right. I'm I'm exaggerating a bit, but it was like a big problem if you know in certain circumstances. And then there's also like if I go. You know, if I don't have a drop of alcohol for a month, but I go to Italy and they're like, oh, this, we've been doing this for five centuries and you can have one little taste. I mean, I don't think it's going to kill me. It's, it's really hard to say no in that situation. But if I, if I know I've taken a vow, uh, like a, a spiritual vow to someone I can really love and honor as my master, that's the only way I think I can get to that 100%. Um, well, that's good. Level. Actually, when I'm, in, when I'm in those embarrassing situations, I'll just play the medical card. <laughs> like, for example, let's, let's say I have to order some food because so I'm traveling and there's nothing else, and I'll say, yeah, yeah, I, uh, you know, the doctor said I can't eat garlic. Oh, for garlic, that's a great one. Yeah, yeah. garlic, or even alcohol, you could say, yeah, I have a medical problem, I, I can't. 
Usually I've found if, if you play the medical card, people calm down. Oh, that's a really good idea. Yeah, the medical card. I haven't tried that yet. <laughs> no, so, so reinitiation. So what do you think? Well, um, then the, so the issue is, um, well, so to me, and Hinduism and Buddhism, the East in general, the, the spiritual master and disciple relationship is like very sacred and very serious. So it's definitely not something I want to just jump into. But then on the other hand, uh, you know, we have Diksha gurus and Shiksha gurus. And Prabhupada himself said that initiation is not much more than a formality. So I'm trying to like, there's like the sacred stuff I want to keep, but then there's also... Uh, like, like, how much do I do I need a, a guru I, I I can totally depend on if it's just um, oh you already have the program you know I'm just like it's like a baptism or something like 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 uh, all right so yeah the, I, I, I what you mean it's like it's like the priest marries you you may never see the priest again but you're married. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's like that, yeah. I think my view, I, I, I thought about this. I have a few views on the Guru Institution, having been one for uh, actually most of my life. <laughs> so, um, first of all, I think it's, um, there is something beneficial in the act of committing to another person. I mean, committing is good, but I think it's even more powerful than committing to just, let's say, an institution, but actually in a relationship. And then, of course, like let's say someone gets married and takes a wedding vow, if they really, really care about their husband or wife, and, you know, you really love the other person, then you just, that restrains you. Oh, sorry, what, what restrains you from what? Your sacred vow to another person, let's say in marriage. Ah, uh, restrains you from adultery and, and yes. all the other problems, yeah. yeah if, if you truly love someone and you really, and, and you're fortunate in the sense that you're able to love someone, and you're, because some people can't really get out of themselves enough to love another person. But, but if you're able to love another person and you really and you would never consciously do anything that would seriously harm them or hurt them, then I think that acts as a powerful restraint. And so, of course, I think it's, it, it's important also that the guru know how to do his or her job. Uh, by the way, I'm, you know, I'm completely in favor that women can also be gurus, but and I think it's kind of nutty that, you know, they're not right now in ISKCON. But, mm. I, so I don't want to say he, guru he, because I think it, it, you know, it should be a man or a woman. But, but the point is that, um, yeah, cause I, I really don't care what kind of body people have, if they can do the devotional service properly. So um, I think if someone is able to have a, a genuine relationship with a guru, and the, for the guru side, I think it's really important that gurus understand that their duty is not to keep their disciple in a perpetual state of mental 
infancy or childhood. In other words, it's not a guru doesn't mean like like for example, Narada Muni, that famous story in the Chaitanya Charitamrita of Magari the hunter, where he was killing animals, and so Narada went, he enlightened him, basically initiated him, and then he, he left and came back, you know, occasionally see, hey, how you doing? And and so in the classical the, the idea where the guru actually manages your life, like do this, don't do that, all day. That is in the Gurukula, which is elementary school. Right. I mean, that's what my mother told me when I went to school. You know, just do whatever the teacher says. And so, in, in, in an adult guru-disciple relationship, it's not the guru's job to treat the disciple like a child. And you're, the guru is supposed to give the disciple or offer the disciple real Krishna consciousness and and, and guidance. And so I, I think if it's an adult relationship with mutual respect and uh, you know people commit to each other in that way, then it's it's not so daunting. Mm. So uh, let me get, I guess, maybe closer to the, the heat of the issue. Um, when I think of Prabhupada, I can easily see him as my master in many ways and 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 there's really like a deep spiritual love there so but for most of the iskan gurus now i can see i see them and i don't mean offense by this of course but i see them as teachers as great devotees uh and leaders but i i don't have the same uh heart to heart kind of attraction there so well, in a sense, it's not my job to be another Prabhupada because you know I'm not. I'm not. I think I think I'm a. My qualification, uh, if I have one, is just that um, somehow or other, despite my many deficiencies, of which I'm more aware even than people on Sampradaya Sun. But anyway, I mean, despite all my, I call it Sampradaya Rahu. But so. You know, despite all my deficiencies that I have to live with every day, um, somehow or other, I was able to please Prabhupada. When Prabhupada was here, he was very pleased with the service that he empowered me to do. And, uh, and so I am confident, this is what I can do, like in terms of what am I able to do. Uh, I think that I'm able to train people. By the way, I'm not making a pitch for your doctrine. But uh, I, I think what I'm actually able to do is to train a disciple to please Prabhupada. And so the fact that you see Prabhupada in a higher level just means you're not a fool. <laughs> because Prabhupada is on a higher level. And, 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 you know, to say that, okay, well, you have feelings for Prabhupada, but you're special just for Prabhupada, I think that's natural. Mm. That's completely natural. And, and that's what I see as my job. You know, there's ideas where, where let's say, I'm going to come back and sort of pick up your soul and, you know, take to that spiritual planet. Uh, seriously, I think that what I can really do and, and, and what I think I, I've been trying to do as a guru is just to help people to please Prabhupada. Mm. That's, what I, that's what I think I can do. So if if I were to be initiated by you, if you were so kind, um, would I 
<clears throat> would you initiate me to you in the line or as a representative of Prabhupada? Does that make sense? It's the same thing. It's the same thing? Yeah, it's it because it's um it's all just one spiritual family. See, I, I don't I don't see it that when I initiate somebody they become my property. So it's like, do I belong to you or do I belong to Prabhupada? To me that's like wacko. What I see is that we're Prabhupada Prabhupada has, you know, wonderfully created a spiritual family. We all belong to that family. We're all serving Prabhupada's mission. I don't have a mission. I'm just trying to develop certain specific programs that I think are useful for Prabhupada's mission. So I don't have a mission, and I don't think I own my disciples. Uh, and, and so if, if I am representing Prabhupada competently, if I'm doing that, or then um, let's say if, if a disciple follows me, they are following Prabhupada because I'm trying to be transparent. So I'm trying to tell my disciples this is what Prabhupada wanted. This is what Prabhupada needs from us. And so, I, you know, it's, I don't think it's like a beauty contest or like, you know, I, you know, I'm a jealous guru because you should be thinking of me. Like when, when, uh, when my disciples, you know, as far as my, like my disciples, if they, in their relationship with me, they should just be ladies and gentlemen. I mean, it, it, there is an etiquette, and I think the etiquette is not mythological or, or obsequious. I think it's just, um, you know, it's just a normal respect you have for a senior teacher who is, and, and apart from that, um, as far as the, the relationship my disciples have with Prabhupada, I feel that's their business. That's their personal relationship with Prabhupada. <clears throat> and... If they, you know, follow proper etiquette, the etiquette which I feel is justified and even necessary, so that people don't get really weird. <clears throat> so if, if if people follow proper etiquette, and uh, and they're, you know, trying just to be dutiful, then their relationship with Prabhupada is between them and Prabhupada. Mm. Well, you've got me totally sold. I think. <laughs> um. I don't know. I'm now. I'm all nervous. <laughs> but uh, uh, how about this? Here's one really fun question to, to to finish it off. Okay, last question. Is the Earth flat? I think some people have flat heads, but um, I won't say who. But no, no, the Earth is not flat, and um, the fact that some people think that is uh, testimony to something I won't go into, but. Actually, um, Siddhaputta, who passed away, my godbrother Siddhaputta, who was, I think, absolutely without question, the most brilliant scientist that ever joined the Hare Krishna movement. And um, he, he was a true genius. I don't say that about a lot of people. I may say, oh, yeah, that person's really smart or they're intelligent, but I don't use the G word that much. Mm-hmm. But uh, Siddhaputta was a genius. And... Um, he showed mathematically that, in, in, of course, there's a debate about this, but in Bhumandala in the fifth canto, that, which Prabhupada said many times, he didn't really understand that well. In fact, Prabhupada told me one time, one time I was, I was Prabhupada's secretary in Mayapur in February uh, 76, just the month before the Mayapur festival, and then I was going to go travel, and he didn't really want me to travel. 
So he said, why don't you just stay here and try to figure out the fifth canto? Like, I don't know. So, so Prabhupada said, you know, he told Harishori that, he told many people that. He just gave a basic Sanskrit translation so people could try to figure it out. So what Sadat Kuta showed is that if you take all those concentric circles, uh, like oceans and islands, actually the, the fifth canto of the Bhu Mandala is describing the solar system it's describing the solar system using a level of precision that wouldn't uh, be discovered in the West, Western science, for many centuries after that. Mm-hmm. And because there's something called the ecliptic, that means if, if you, let's say, get a three-dimensional model, here's the sun and here are the orbits of all the planets in the solar system, and so, just the way God made the world, that if, 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 you, if you think of those orbits of the Earth and the other planets as sort of like uh, drawing a plane, a plane surface, which is, you know, the orbit, like whether it goes above the sun or below the sun, then it turns out that all the orbits in the solar system around the sun are roughly on a plane. They're not like, like a gyro going every which way. They're roughly on a plane. And that plane is called the ecliptic. And if you measure, like, the, like say, average or, or occasional distances from the sun, distances from each other, the fifth canto is actually describing a scientific, is giving a scientific description of the solar system long before it was available in the West. And so that, of course, is called uh, hermeneutics, which means how do you rationally approach a text, and especially a sacred text? Like, and, and we know from Prabhupada's teachings, we know from the Bhagavatam's own statements that some of the, sta- some of the descriptions of the Bhagavatam are allegorical, some are symbolic. For example, we have a, an explicit allegory in the Puranjana story, in the fourth canto, where Narada Muni says, this is an allegory. Or, for example, we have the story, I think, in the eighth canto, where, uh, I think it's the eighth canto, where Rahu swallows the sun and the moon, you know, and that's an eclipse. And if you look at the commentary of some of our great acharyas, they say, well, obviously that's not what really causes an eclipse. And so, and then you have in the Chaitanya Charitamrita, where Prabhupada translates, it says there are illusory stories in the Bhagavatam. And so, um, I don't mean to say it's all mythology. I mean, it's basic history. I mean, there was a real Krishna. He really appeared 5,000 years ago, which we can confirm, by the way, by archaeoastronomy. Because uh, the Bhagavatam and the Mahabharata's texts are full of descriptions of the zodiac because they were really into astrology. And so it's really important, like, where the stars were when someone's born or when someone dies. It's, I mean, so you get a lot of astronomical descriptions. And we can actually, you know, calculate when the night sky would have looked like that. Mm-hmm. And because of various technical scientific reasons I won't go into, you can't fake it. In other words, people, let's say, a thousand years ago in India or two thousand years ago could not have just said, okay, we want this to sound like it happened five thousand years ago. You can't do that for various reasons because of certain variables that they didn't know about. And so there was one uh, gentleman named Aryabhata who lived about 1,500 years ago approximately who was a mathematical and astronomical genius. Just to give you one example, he's one of the co-founders of trigonometry. 
In fact, the terms in trigonometry like sine, cosine, and all those terms that I, you know, tried to avoid in junior high school, they, um, they actually are originally from Sanskrit words that he invented. So he's one of the guys that invented trigonometry, smart guy. And there are stars named after him and, you know, science institutes named after him. So Aryabhata, very smart guy, he calculated the planets, the position of the planets during the Kurukshetra War. And, of course, then you just go back a little bit. When was Krishna born? When did Krishna leave the world? And, in fact, it's about, you know, roughly 5,100 years ago. <clears throat> so um, I don't know how I got into that. That's called like archaeoastronomy, but um, so so if you look at the the fifth canto, you know all those things. Um, I I think Buddha's genius. I think Krishna empowered him, and I think it's actually a symbolic description of the solar system. Mm, I see. There's one thing uh, I just was reminded of. You're talking about trigonometry. So I I heard this. I still don't know what to. Th- to make of this on a calculator if you type in sin 666 that is sine 666 you get a negative irrational number you double it make it positive and it's the golden ratio so yeah lots just of interesting thing we'll have to continue later <laughs> yes yes of course um, so thank you so much for giving me your time and um, also I guess while I still have you, I feel like I might regret it if I don't ask, but would you bless me with your initiation? All right, Krishna. Yeah, however I I can help you, I'm glad to do it. Okay, excellent. So no no rush, no pressure, but uh, yeah, I'll come back to America at some point. I'm sure I can find you in in the flesh. Uh, okay. Hare Krishna. Thank yeah. you so much, Goswami. It was a pleasure. Hare Krishna. It was a real honor, real pleasure. Uh, I wish you uh, a great day and uh, Krishna's mercy. Thank you. Thank you. Hare Krishna. Hare Bol.